It was a very cruel scene. Executed in an unusual manner. Cruel Coven. Hi, my little chickens. Welcome to Cruel and Unusual, the podcast. I'm Tori. I'm Katie. And here we are. Again. Where to go from here? Only up. Should we jump in? Should we just jump? Are we jumping or diving? Take my hand. Okay, got it. Do you guys think we're holding hands? (laughs) We're not. We're too far away to be holding hands. (laughs) Even if we were close, we still wouldn't. No. Okay, you guys, I feel like we're just going to get right into the articles today because this is going to be a little long boy. It is. Okay. You want to go first? It doesn't matter. I'm going to go first. You go first. Okay. You do it. My article is from TheGuardian.com, and it was written by Helen Carter on Friday, 28 May, 2004-20.54 EDT. 2004? Got it, yeah. Oh, it's an old one. It's an oldie. Like me. Mm-hmm. The headline is, quote, Bizarre Tale of Boy Who Used Internet to Plot His Own Murder. Plot His Own Murder. Plot His Own Murder. Did he, like, Gone Girl himself? I haven't read it, Katie. Who oh, do you duh. think I am? I'm Okay, I'm guessing. He <laughs> Gone Girl himself. Was it rhetorical? Yeah. Okay. The final internet chat room exchange took place on the 28th of June last year. So 2003. You want me to take him to Trafford Center and kill him in the middle of Trafford Center? Said one message. Yes, came the reply. That's a horrible idea. Yeah. Less than 24 hours later, a 14-year-old boy was critically ill in hospital with stab wounds in the chest and stomach. At first, it seemed as though a brutal but straightforward robbery had gone wrong. But yesterday, the young victim became the first person in this country to be convicted of inciting their own murder. Inciting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. An intricate web of deceit had been spun by the boy on the chat room to recruit another teenager as his would-be killer. This case serves as a stark warning of the dangers of the dark side of the internet, Nicholas Clark, prosecuting, told the court yesterday. The boy, who is now 15 and can be referred to only as John for legal reasons, persuaded his friend, known as Mark, now 17, to stab him to death in order to pass a fictitious initiation test for the British Secret Services in a meticulously planned attack one Sunday evening last summer. What the fuck? So... He got his friend to stab him? Is that what I'm understanding? I don't understand. John from Greater Manchester pleaded guilty at Manchester Crown Court to incitement to murder and perverting the course of justice. Wow. He was given a three-year supervision order banned from contacting Mark or using the internet without strict adult supervision. Mark, who was also from a middle-class family in Greater Manchester, was given a two-year supervision order for attempted murder. Mm, so, yeah, wow. I'm sorry. <laughs> I understand the, the logistics here, but yeah. a two-year supervision order for attempted murder? That's... I mean, I guess he still he still did it. Yeah. Even if he was persuaded, right? Yeah. I, I <laughs> this whole thing is so convoluted. <laughs> wow. Judge David Madison, the recorder of Manchester, said, Skilled writers of fiction would struggle to conjure up a plot such as that which arises here. Tell me about it. 
I'm not, I, a, skilled, honestly, I'm not I a skilled writer of fiction. I struggle to conjure up any plots. <laughs> oh, shit. You're oh, totally right. It's staggering to be dealing with a case that arises out of a 14-year-old boy's invention of false personalities, false relationships, and events arranged for his own killing at the hands of a 16-year-old boy who he had met via an internet chat room. Wow. I hope those boys got the help that they needed. Me too. He said that under normal circumstances, the offenses committed would have resulted in extremely lengthy custodial sentences, but these could not be described as any normal circumstances, the judge added. The attack left John, a promising grammar school student, close to death. One of the stab wounds pierced his kidney and lacerated Mm. his liver. His gallbladder had to be removed and he remained critically ill in hospital for a week. Mark had been fooled by John into believing he was working for the British Secret Services. Wow. Oh, okay, so he was even fooled by him. I thought he was in on it. He was expecting to meet the Prime Minister and be given a gun and up to 500,000 euros in cash. I'm sorry. (laughs) Why? Why? At first, the police thought the attack was committed by an adult robber described in precise details by Mark. Mm. Detectives made appeals for help through the local media for the apparently unprovoked attack in Altrincham Town Center. That was a really bad pronunciation. I'm sorry. It works. But when officers examined CCTV footage, oh no, they realized the story was implausible. It showed Mark and John had disappeared down an alleyway alone for 25 minutes. Oh, boy. He didn't think far enough ahead in his 14-year-old brain. That pesky CCTV, it sees all. (sighs) Yes, it does. From his hospital bed, John said he had been stabbed by Mark, but he didn't know why. (laughs) In July last year, Mark was charged with attempted murder. But when it emerged that the boys had met through a teenage chat room detectives examined their computers a criminal intelligence analyst sally hogg poured over fifty-eight thousand lines of text generated between them in six weeks can you imagine <laughs> the shit that she had to read yes oh man sally Police were able to link all the fictional characters back to John because Miss Hogg's analysis discovered common features in the typing style, such as the misspelling of maybe as my by of all the characters. Mm, see, that's where you fucked up, too. Mm-hmm. Mr. Ross said the older boy thought he was talking to five or six different people when he was, in fact, only talking to the younger boy all along. Damn, that's a lot to keep that's track of. A, lo- a lot. Write a book. Just write a book. Yeah, You would have been damn good to, at it, man. We don't need to get stabby with it. That was from TheGuardian.com. Wow. That was a very wild, bumpy, tumultuous ride for... Mm-hmm. A couple of minutes. Yeah. Okay, my article is from abc7chicago.com, but I know it's been all over the place. Um, This is a pretty shitty headline, and I'm sorry. Okay. It's titled, Unthinkable Loss, More Than 200 Bodies of Children Found at Indigenous School in Canada. No. Do you remember when I was listening to the Missing and Murdered podcast and I was talking about the Indigenous schools? Yeah. That they were forced to go to? Yes. Okay, so this is at one of them. No. Really? So it says, The remains of 215 children, some as young as three years old, have been found buried on the site of what was once Canada's largest indigenous residential school. 
one of the institutions that held children taken from families across the nation. First Nations Chief Roseanne Casimir said in a news release that the remains were confirmed last weekend with the help of ground-penetrating radar. More bodies may be found because there are more areas to search on the school grounds, Casimir said Friday. In an earlier release, she called the discovery an unthinkable loss that was spoken about but never documented at the Kamloops Indian Residential School. Ugh, it's so devastating. Mm -hmm. From the 19th century until the 1970s, more than 150,000 First Nations children were required to attend state-funded Christian schools as part of a program to assimilate them into Canadian society. Or to kill them. And horribly abuse them. Yeah, my God. They were forced to convert to Christianity and not allowed to speak their native languages. Many were beaten and verbally abused, and up to 6,000 are said to have died. Mm. The Canadian government apologized in Parliament in 2008 and admitted that physical and sexual abuse in the schools was rampant. Many students recall being beaten for speaking their native languages. They also lost touch with their parents and customs. God, that's, oh, I can't even imagine Mm -hmm. that. Indigenous leaders have cited that legacy of abuse and isolation as the root cause of epidemic rates of alcoholism and drug addiction on reservations. Yeah, of course. Of course that. Of course. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of them grew up horrifically abused at at these schools. Right. They weren't taught coping methods. No. Not to mention being snatched from your home. From everything that you know. Down to not even being able to speak that language. Yeah. You could not take or strip more of someone. Horrific. Wow. A report more than five years ago by a Truth and Reconciliation Commission said at least 3,200 children had died amid abuse and neglect, and it said it had reports of at least 51 deaths at the Kamloops school alone between 1915 and 1963. This is just one of the schools. How many deaths? It said at least 51 at this school between 1915 and 1963. Wow. So 51 reported. They found over 200 bodies. So, so many of those children were not even reported dead. Oh, honey. Yeah. Oh, my God. I hate that. Mm -hmm. This really resurfaces the issue of residential schools and the wounds from this legacy of genocide towards indigenous people. Terry T.G., Assembly of First Nations Regional Chief for British Columbia, said Friday. The remains were detected and not exhumed. Lisa LaPointe, chief coroner in British Columbia, said it was advised by the tribal leaders on Thursday about the discovery of a burial site located adjacent to the former Kamloops Indian Residential School. The band is still working with a radar specialist to complete a survey of the ground. They anticipate having a full report ready by mid-June, one Casimir said will be shared publicly, but not until it has been disclosed to its membership and other local First Nations chiefs. She said the band will also be looking into what it can do to honor the children and the families impacted. The Kamloops School operated between 1890 and 1969 when the federal government took over operations from the Catholic Church and operated it as a day school until it closed in 1978. Casimir said it's believed the deaths are undocumented, although a local museum archivist is working with the Royal British Columbia Museum to see if any records of the deaths can be found. Access to the latest technology allows for a true accounting of the missing children and will hopefully bring some peace and closure to those lives lost, she said in the release. 
Casimir said band officials are informing community members and surrounding communities that had children who attended the school. She said she did not hear survivors talk about an unmarked grave, but they all talk about the kids who didn't make it. Oh, wow. I mean, not only the the horrific reality of being taken from your family and right. customs and traditions and culture to live at this school where you might not know a single fucking person and you're being abused. Right. Or neglected or both. Oh, But then God. just to die in however, whatever and to, manner they died in right. and then to be cast away and just forgotten. Right. To die alone. Mm-hmm. How as a child, scary. As a child. Oh, my God. Terrifying. And like I said, I, I don't know which episode I was talking about this in, but I didn't even know that these schools happened neither did i i didn't i had no idea wow yeah that's so fucking heartbreaking and i know that article has been floating around i mean it was just released i think yesterday which would have been saturday the saturday the 29th and it was shared in our group i think by katrina but i had had it saved because so many people don't know right what went on in those schools it's just horrific so yeah. should we get a little bit lighter before we get darker again? Can, can we get lighter before we the dark? Yeah, we can. God. We've got some. <laughs> we have some food-related questions oh, of the day slash week. So. I love food. Same. So we're just gonna do a few of these. We'll save the others. Rapid fire. Rapid fire. Okay. Jessica wants to know what is your favorite cookout food? I think a hot dog. Because, a little bit burnt. Yeah, because yeah. I don't ever have them any other time. I don't like them any other time, yeah. except for if they're grilled. Yeah, right. And a little crispy with Who, ketchup only. I don't feel like anyone would ever want a cold, uncooked wiener. One that's still smooth? Limp? No, I like my wieners a little wrinkly and crispy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just a smidge. Otherwise, for me. I won't eat one. I don't buy them. I don't eat them at home. No, I don't me fucking microwave them. Oh no. no, no, I don't really like the taste of them except it's, for if they're grilled. It's a cookout or nothing. Mm-hmm. All right, Tracy wants to know: Should iced tea be sweetened or unsweetened? Unsweetened. Sweetened. Un. You like to drink shit that just tastes like Un- straight up leaves and dirt. Fine. Unsweetened. <laughs> I'm shocked because you love sweet things. Oh, I love a good sweet thing, but not my tea. Have you ever had real sweet tea? Yeah. Weird. That's so weird to me. One more food question, also from Jessica: Does pineapple belong on pizza? Fuck no. Yes, and you can't say no because you've never tried it. I wouldn't. I, you would that like it. That sounds so unappealing. Yeah, I know it sounds unappealing. a perfectly good stuffed crust pizza with pepperoni with pineapple. Well, you don't put pepperoni with pineapple. You well, that's the only kind of pizza pineapple. I eat. Well, I'm I don't like one. ham. You don't? Neither do I. <laughs> do you think I just eat ham? Didn't no. You, didn't you say ham? Yeah. But you get it with pineapple and you, it's amazing. I don't think I could do it. I think you would be just fucking fine. All right. Who wants to Venmo <laughs> us 15 bucks and I'll try it. I'm going to make her try it. It's not that bad. Yeah. If somebody else buys it, I'll try it. Okay. But I don't have a fully open mind. All right. Are you ready to get into today's topic? Yeah, I'm ready. I'm. It's a very hard episode to... It's a very hard topic to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, And you guys will see why. So today I am going to be telling you about an incredibly serious, catastrophic event that is now known as the Tulsa Race Massacre. I feel like a lot of you have probably been seeing things about it, like on ads Mm -hmm. and on TV and stuff for the past couple of weeks, because the 100-year anniversary was this past Monday into Tuesday, if you're listening to this when it comes out. So... 
um, May 31st into June 1st of 1921 is when the Tulsa race massacre occurred. And it was never spoken about. And we'll get into all of this. But just so you know, it's a 100 year anniversary this past week. And I've been seeing it more than I've ever saw anything about it. I feel like it's hard for me to properly put into words like the complete and utter devastation that I felt as I was researching this massacre that I still feel even now when talking about it. I cannot even imagine for one second being in their shoes. Right. Not for one second. I cannot even begin to fathom what it would be like to have my home burned down or my business burned down or my family's lives mercilessly stolen all because of the color of my skin. And that's because I'm very obviously white. It's my white privilege. It's because I've never had to experience the the heartbreak of being judged by my skin color. I grew up in a very small town, as you know, we both did, with a mere 40 children in my eighth grade graduating class. How many were in yours? Do you remember? Probably about the same. I learned a lot about the white generals and wars in history class. Mm -hmm. I learned about our first president, a white president, George Washington. Uh, But I never knew who Booker T. Washington was, despite the fact that he had many more accolades than George Washington ever did. Mm -hmm. George Washington owned slaves, while Booker T. Washington was born into slavery. I learned about how there were only white presidents at the time I was in eighth grade. I remember learning about the presidents and memorizing all of them and the fact that they were all white. We had to dress up like them. Yeah. And give speeches like we were them. Yep. I remember the photographs and illustrations that were in my history book. And I remember that they were all white people. There was no black people unless they were talking about slaves. They might throw in Rosa Parks. They might throw in Martin Luther King Jr. Right. And that was about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the definition of ignorance, according to Merriam-Webster, is the, quote, lack of knowledge or information, end quote. And when I look back on the history curriculum that I was taught while growing up, I can very confidently say that my generation was being taught to be ignorant to the fact that racism was alive and existing and still is. Mm -hmm. And I never understood and still can't understand what black people have gone through forever. I just remember that being taught that slavery and that racism, that racial prejudices were a thing of the past. Obviously, since growing up and leaving the small town, going to a larger feeder school for high school, attending college, etc., my view on the world is drastically different and I can see what's been going on what we were lied to about or what was omitted from us as children. But I do know that I will never begin to comprehend the trials and the tribulations and the just overall hardships that black people and other people of color face. So one of the main reasons that I chose to talk about the Tulsa race massacre today was not only because it's the 100 year anniversary of such a catastrophic event, but also because it's something that I did not learn about and that I think is so vitally and crucially important that we're teaching our children Mm -hmm. because this is something that matters and justice needs to be served. It was never in any of the books that I read. It wasn't on the television specials I watched. There were no enlightening dinner conversations about it or questions to be asked because no one was talking about it. The people who were part of this matter The people who lived and died through these periods in history matter, and I think that we owe it to those people to talk about it. So what is now known as the Tulsa Race Massacre occurred over a period of around 18 hours. It started on May 31st of 1921 and dwindled down on June 1st of 1921. But what happened during those 18 hours still has an impact today 
on the neighborhood that it happened in and the people that it happened to. During these 18 hours, a raging, relentless white mob of people attacked Black-owned residences and Black-owned businesses within the Greenwood neighborhood in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The internet states that the Tulsa race massacre will go down in history as one of the, quote, worst incidences of racial violence in U.S. history, end quote. However, it's also been classified as one of the least known incidents of racial violence in U.S. history. In 1921, Tulsa, Oklahoma was booming. The crime rate in Tulsa was high, and it's reported that vigilante justice was a common type of justice. Yikes. Even now, when I was looking at the crime rate in more recent years, Tulsa is still fairly up there. There are 25,356 annually reported crimes as of when I conducted my research in May of 2021, 3,968 of which were classified as violent crimes and 21,388 that are classified as property crimes. Quote, for Tulsa, we found that the violent crime rate is one of the highest in the nation across communities of all sizes, both large and small. Violent offenses tracked included rape, murder, and non-negligent manslaughter, armed robbery, and aggravated assault, including assault with a deadly weapon. According to Neighborhood Scouts' analysis of FBI-reported crime data, your chance of becoming a victim of one of these crimes in Tulsa is 1 in 101. Wow. End quote. Yeah. That was from NeighborhoodScout.com. So obviously, Tulsa has never been one of the safest cities to plant your roots in. But back in the early 1920s, the city was also extremely segregated on top of being violent. Racial injustice was a common theme, especially in Tulsa, Oklahoma. In 1921, there were around 10,000 black residents in Tulsa. These residents lived primarily in Greenwood, which was a neighborhood in the city that was home to both residences and a business district. This business area was referred to as, quote, the Black Wall Street, end quote. And we'll get to why it was called the Black Wall Street in a minute. But first, let me talk briefly about Greenwood. So Greenwood was both built and founded by black residents of the Tulsa community in 1906. And prior to 1906, prior to being built up, it was native territory. To give you a very brief overview of what happened to this native territory, there was an act put into place that was called the Indian Removal Act. This law authorized any and all native tribes to be removed from their homeland areas. This act was put into place in 1830, and subsequently, around 60,000 members of the Seminole, Chickasaw, Cherokee, Muscogee, and Choctaw tribes or nations were forcefully removed from their land. If you remember hearing about the Trail of Tears, this occurred around this time because all of the native tribes were evacuating, forcefully, forcefully so. Along with them... The black slaves that they owned were also removed and forced to travel west of the Mississippi to areas that were designated as, quote, Indian Territory. After this, when the area was being built up, it was known as Greenwood, and this is when it began being dubbed the Black Wall Street. Black Wall Street was thriving. Black-owned businesses were growing and flourishing, and it was an incredibly upward swing in the booming oil city of Tulsa. That is, until late May of 1921. But before we get into that, I want to talk about why Greenwood was really initially built up in the first place. Because it isn't just that a group of intelligent black businessmen got together and decided to build a neighborhood. That's not how it went. 
it was because the black community was not able to reside and own their own businesses in many of the other Tulsa communities. Right. So they had to make their own. Exactly. And I'm not just talking about back in the 1800s and the early 1900s when this event that I'm going to talk about today unfolded. I'm talking about even in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Like that was not long ago. Even like they could just for one example one of many that I could talk about. On August 4th of 1960, there was a law passed in Tulsa, Oklahoma that mandated racial segregation. Mandated. 1960. This law passed in 1960 mandated racial segregation in the way of if there were three-fourths of any city block being inhabited by white people, no black person could move on into that block. The U.S. Supreme Court declared that that law that Tulsa passed was unconstitutional the next year. But that didn't stop segregation from taking place in Tulsa or anywhere else for that matter. And the fact that that was... It passed in the first place. Yeah, right. I just want to... And that was just one thing out of so many things. Like, you can't... There's an endless list. Yeah. We... I want to just briefly touch on the fact that the KKK was also on an upward rise in the early 1920s and had been since around 1915 when it had a huge boom in new members and active members. Do you remember when they were scouting here and leaving in in this town? Yes. Leaving their um, flyer or whatever. Stupid ass fucking flyers on people's doors. I do. I do. I remember when we were really little that happening. Yeah, and it just happened a few years ago because it was on Facebook. Somebody posted the flyer on Facebook like, what the fuck is this? I remember that. Because it doesn't straight out say, we're the KKK. Right. Right. different um, verbiage. Yeah. In the year of 1921, there were an estimated 3,200 members of the KKK living in Tulsa, and the population was around 72, was around 72,000 at the time. And honestly, it seems like the gap between 72,000 and 3,200 is huge, a big space, a large difference. But yeah. when we're talking about a group of people who are hateful and brooding and just overall ready and willing and able to inflict harm on anyone they see might not fit into the society that they want to be in 3,200 people is a lot of people yeah it is so in 1921 the greenwood neighborhood was impeccable like i said it was dubbed the black wall street and it was home to movie theaters grocery stores clubs restaurants many churches its own newspaper dentists, physicians, and lawyers. In Greenwood, the neighborhood people elected their own officials and leaders. They raised money for economic growth, and like I mentioned, the Greenwood people built that neighborhood from the ground, literally the ground up. Part of the reason they elected their own officials and their own leaders was because black people couldn't vote. They couldn't serve on juries or become elected officials themselves. It wasn't until 1965 with the passing of the Federal Voting Rights Act of 1965 that they were allowed to vote. And even after that, now there are still people actively suppressing black votes. Right. So next, I want to talk about the event that kind of set the entire Tulsa race massacre into motion. On May 30th of 1921, a young black man named Dick Rowland was working as a shoe shiner at Main Street Shine Parlor. He had to walk to 319 South Main Street in Tulsa to the Drexel building in order to use a bathroom because it's 1921 and black people were not allowed to use the same bathrooms as white people. 
So he couldn't use the bathroom where he worked? No. So Dick Rowland gets into the elevator and he's met by a white woman named Sarah Page. Sarah is the elevator operator. And at some point in the next few moments, Sarah screams or cries out and it causes a complete uproar because another employee at Drexel heard Sarah scream and saw Dick Rowland running away and chaos ensued from there. The employee said that when he got to Sarah, she looked distraught, leading him to call the police. And the police came and spoke to them, but a report was never written down about the incident. Supposedly, an investigation was conducted, but there's no record of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I would imagine the white woman's word would be oh. all that they needed. Oh, I'm sure. Gossip started swirling around the city of Tulsa, and the newspaper, the Tulsa Tribune, ran a story stating that the police arrested a black man for sexually assaulting a white woman on an elevator. Mm. This was on the front page of the newspaper, leading to completely enraged townspeople. The headline on the front page of the newspaper read, quote, Nab Negro for attacking girl in an elevator. End quote. Great. So before he was even charged? Yeah. Tried? Anything? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to read you the article that followed. And just as a reminder, this headline that I previously read and the quote that I'm about to read use some antiquated racial terminology. Quote, a Negro delivery boy who gave his name to the public as Diamond Dick, but who has been identified as Dick Rowland, was arrested on South Greenwood Avenue this morning by officers Carmichael and Pack, charged with attempting to assault a 17-year-old white elevator girl in the Drexel building early yesterday. He will be tried in municipal court this afternoon on a state charge. The girl said she noticed the Negro a few minutes before the attempted assault, looking up and down the hallway on the third floor of the Drexel building, as if to see if there was anyone in sight, but thought nothing of it at the time. A few minutes later, he entered the elevator, she claimed, and attacked her, scratching her hands and her face and tearing her clothes. Her screams brought a clerk from Renberg's store to her assistance, and the Negro fled. He was captured and identified this morning by both the girl and the clerk, police say. Tenants of the Drexel building said the girl is an orphan who works as an elevator operator to pay her way through business college, end quote. And that was all from the Tulsa Tribune. So we know that this was like the instigating incident, but tensions were already high. Obviously, a lot of the people were flat out racist. Yeah. And there was a lot of hate. Right. But those newspaper headline writers, whoever did that, wow. Yeah. You cannot say that that didn't instigate well, absolutely. A lot of shit. And, wow. and they know that it did because yeah, yeah. they got rid of any archives of it Wow, from any of their bound editions. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. And also they did that. That was that was someone's word against someone else's word mm-hmm. at that time. Right. And I'll, I'll tell you about how that played out in just a few minutes. But first, so Dick ends up heading over towards his mother's house in the Greenwood neighborhood. He wanted to stay there until until things calmed down. However, he wasn't there very long because on the next morning, May 31st of 1921, he was taken into custody and brought to the Tulsa City Jail. Dick ended up getting transferred out of the city jail not long after because there were numerous death and lynching threats called in and voiced to the officers who were at the jail. Angry white people kept saying that they would kill him and they were demanding that police officers hand Dick over to them. God. So that same evening, 
An angry mob of white people started demanding to the sheriff, Sheriff Willard McCullough, that he had to hand over Dick Rowland to them, just like they were at first trying to persuade the other officers. Now they're mm-hmm. persuading, trying to persuade even the sheriff. There was an incident not long before in which a white man was jailed and a group of people lynched him. So there was a bunch of pressure put on law enforcement to protect Dick Rowland. The sheriff ended up refusing to turn him over to this group of angry white people, and they just kept gathering and growing by the numbers on the lawn. The sheriff had his men barricade Dick Rowland inside the courthouse to protect him on the highest floor of the building with armed guards. Sheriff McCullough tried to go out and calm the mob down to no avail. They just wanted to lynch him, and they weren't planning on leaving until the sheriff turned him over. Greenwood community residents were also gathering, but not at the lawn of the courthouse. They were gathering just mere blocks away in their own neighborhood, trying to figure out how to peacefully calm down the group of white people who were threatening to lynch a 19-year-old. Now, some of the Greenwood community residents were World War I veterans who wanted to round up all of their people and their guns and their ammo and prepare themselves for a huge blowout battle. The other half of these residents were businessmen who were worried about their businesses and their families, their livelihoods, and they wanted to figure out a way to go about dissolving the mob in a more peaceful, non-weapon related way. At 9 p.m. on May 31st of 1921, 25 armed black men from the Greenwood District that were veterans ended up going to the courthouse. They wanted to offer their services to help officers protect Dick Rowland. There was conflicting information when I was researching. Some reports said that this group of 25 men were called on by the sheriff, but Some of the information out there didn't mention that at all. But either way you look at it, once they got there, they were turned away. The sheriff publicly and adamantly denied that he had ever given them any orders to come to the courthouse. Around 10 p.m. on that same night, the 31st, the mob was still growing in size and completely relentless. Now, 75 members, before it was 25, now there's 75, members of the Greenwood community come back to the courthouse. They said that they just wanted to make sure that Dick Rowland was protected, and they felt like that was their duty. Do you blame them? I mean, shit. No. Uh, The police officers had just allowed a a white man to be lynched. Right. Could you imagine what they were feeling when they knew that there was a black man in there? At this point, there was an estimated 1,500 white mob members. Wow. A white man reportedly told one of the black Greenwood men to hand over his gun, and the black man refused, rightfully so, that was his. And somewhere in there, the very first shot was fired. It isn't known if it was an accident, if it was on purpose, who pulled the trigger. Maybe the white man reached for the gun and grabbed it and Mm -hmm. pulled the trigger. It, It isn't known. It just probably more than likely went off during the struggle. And no matter the reason for that shot being fired, that is just what sent everyone over the edge in the worst possible way. Greenwood residents retreated back to their community, and the white mob people followed them there, making a choice to take every ounce of their aggression that had been boiling all day out onto the entire Greenwood community. Some of the mob tried to raid and rob the National Guard, like I'm assuming perhaps an armory or somewhere Mm -hmm. where weapons were kept. But the mayor, Mayor James Bowe, was already ahead of them. This this had been brewing all day, Mm -hmm. so there were people in... So there were there were people already taking precautions. He had given guards orders to stand and be prepared with weapons. So they were. And when the mob got there, the mob realized they were not going to be getting a bunch of guns and ammo like they thought they would. Idiots. 
There were many of the white mob members that did have weapons, though, sadly enough, and they chose to start rapid firing at anyone they saw in the Greenwood neighborhood. God. Mm -hmm. People going in and out of movie theaters, people dining in restaurants, anyone and everyone they saw, they shot at. Jeez. At 11 p.m. that same night on the 31st, the National Guard started to assemble and devise a plan to break up or try to dissolve the mob. Ultimately, multiple groups were dispersed, and it's reported that these groups of military were sent out to protect the city's white residents and the white community. Mm -hmm. Not Greenwood, not the Greenwood residents, not the area that was being attacked and the people that were being attacked, the white people. The National Guard also started picking up any black people they saw out on the street and detaining them in the convention hall on Brandy Street. There was no reason given to them of why they were being picked up and held. They were just being taken to the detainment center with no knowledge or insight as to why. Tulsa founder W. Tate Brady, who was also, might I add, a KKK member, participated in the unfolding massacre as a night watchman. On June 1st, in the early morning hours, small groups of white men were going into Greenwood, specifically armed with oil rags. They started torching the businesses and buildings on Black Wall Street with the hope of burning the entire neighborhood to the ground. They even threw the oil rags into residences, homes in the community. The Tulsa Fire Department was deployed out onto the scene, but the firefighters were turned away at gunpoint by the mob. Wow. Many of the Greenwood residents started trying to flee, but the mob was so large it overtook the entire neighborhood and anyone they saw running was immediately gunned down. It's estimated now that there were 1,256 homes burned, 215 homes looted, two newspaper companies ruined, along with a hospital, a library, a school, churches, hotels, stores, all destroyed. There were as many as up to 300 people murdered. The actual count is unknown, and we'll get to that later. It was later found out by an eyewitness that there were planes flying low to the ground, firing shots and dropping firebombs on buildings and homes. Planes? Planes. Who was doing that? Some of the planes were said to be privately owned. Oh. But some were not. When the white mob people went into the homes that were owned by other white people, If they had anyone in the house that was not white, like cooks or quote-unquote servants, the mob demanded that they be handed over to them, and many of them were. Wow. In all, there ended up being an estimated 600 black people being held at the detainment centers. Imagine how terrifying that would be. Not only can you not be there to defend your home, your property, your business. But you don't know if any of them are still there or standing or if your family's okay. Right. They ended up holding them at three different spots, probably because they were holding so many people. And they had people at the convention hall, the Tulsa Fairgrounds, and McNulty Park, a baseball stadium. Some of these people were held for eight days. Wow. Eight days. Oh, my God. Martial law ended up being declared on June 1st at 1130. And by noon, troops had managed to stop a majority of the violence that had still been going on for those 18 hours. Just so unbelievably devastating. If you were to stand at the center of Greenwood midday on June 1st of 1921, you would see complete and total destruction of your entire neighborhood. You would have no clue if your friends and your family members were alive or dead. That is horrifying. Yeah. 
Now, as far as Dick Rowland was concerned, any and all charges were dropped after Sarah declared she would not move forward with legal action. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Police ended up saying that Dick Rowland stepped on her foot or maybe stumbled f- towards her on the elevator, mm-hmm. leading her to scream in surprise. After Dick was released from custody, he fled Tulsa and never went back. There were 35 city blocks utterly destroyed. 35 city blocks. Yes. And nearly 800 people were treated at local hospitals. At least 36 were declared dead at the time. However, we know the number was is much higher. As a result of this, segregation increased. The KKK gained even more power than they had previously had, and the Tulsa Tribune made the entire Greenwood and black community appear as if they were the reason why this happened. And that's why it was called the Tulsa Riots for so long. Right. They placed all of the blame on them. None of the white mob of assholes who started and orchestrated the entire thing had any ounce of culpability. There were no ceremonies or memorials held for the lives lost over those two days. It seemed as if Tulsa just wanted to sweep the entire event under a rug and act like it never happened. Most people say there was a deliberate cover-up effort, which I 100% agree with. Oh, yeah. The Tulsa Tribune, like I said earlier, immediately removed their front page story that sparked all of this to life from the bound records. Historians and scholars later uncovered that police archives and event archives were missing, almost like they were never there to begin with, which is why none of this is in history books. But honestly, this happens a lot. And it did it did often then too. It wasn't only the Tulsa race massacre that wasn't being spoken about. There was Juneteenth, the Tuskegee experiment, the Red Summer of nineteen nineteen, Drapetomania, slave codes, one drop rule, bleeding Kansas, anti literacy laws. The list goes on and on and on and on and on. And if you've never heard of those things that I just mentioned, I'm not surprised. I know that I had no clue about any of them Mm -hmm. at all until the Tuskegee experiment when you covered it. But the rest of it I hadn't heard of. Governor James B.A. Robinson called for a grand jury to investigate how or even why the massacre happened. It started on June 8th of 1921. Both black and white witnesses were interviewed, as well as Sheriff McCullough and other officials. This was conducted over a 12-day period, and the jury was made up of all white people. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. (sighs) And if you couldn't guess... They found that the Tulsa race massacre was incited by the black community. Mm -hmm. It was concluded that between 100 and 300 people were ruthlessly murdered and nearly 8,000, if not more, were forced into homelessness. There were $1.8 million in riot claims, quote unquote riot claims, against the city taken out over the next year. The winter of 1921 and of 1922 were spent in tents for a majority of the Greenwood residents while they aimed to rebuild their homes and their neighborhood from the ashes. There was also a new fire code put into motion to prevent another disaster like this one. This would ban wooden framed homes. Because of this new fire code that they were implementing, all construction that was underway in Greenwood was halted. Nothing was allowed to continue being rebuilt until the code was finalized. It said, and I believe it, 
that the Reconstruction Committee wanted the black landowners to sign over their property to the city. So they were trying to draw it out as long as possible. Mm-hmm. They had these grand plans to build a railway. Tulsa Union Depot did end up being built less than two years later, over top of where many of the homes and businesses once stood. There was never even one conviction of any of the white mob members. The race massacre was largely omitted from any and really all history, which is why many people have never heard of it. There's a woman by the name of Mary E. Jones Parrish, who was a teacher and a journalist. She compiled and published what is known to be the very first book on the event called, quote, Events of the Tulsa Disaster, end quote. In 2003, five elderly survivors filed a lawsuit against the city of Tulsa and the state of Oklahoma and I believe the police department as well. The lawsuit said that the state and the city should be liable to compensate the victims and their families to honor their admitted obligations. The lawsuit was dismissed and they said that the statute of limitations had been exceeded. Mm. The state of Oklahoma required any and all civil cases to be filed within just two years after a wrongdoing happened. The case then went to the Supreme Court, who also failed the survivors and declined to hear the appeal. In April of 2007, there was a U.S. Congress push to pass a bill that would rectify this issue, extending the statute of limitations for this particular case given the lengthy extent that the city of Tulsa and the state of Oklahoma had gone to keep this massacre under wraps. The bill was heard by the judiciary of the House and it was not passed. Two years later, in 2009, the bill was reintroduced as the John Hope Franklin Tulsa Greenwood Race Riot Claims Accountability Act of 2009. It was renamed in honor of the late Dr. John Hope Franklin, who dedicated much of his life to educating people about the fact that the Tulsa Race Massacre happened and shouldn't be forgotten about or omitted from history. Since 2000, the State Department of Education has required the massacre to be taught in Oklahoma City classes. It's been in history books since 2009, but apparently not required for the rest of America. I'm not sure on the logistics, but it literally took the better part of a century for this to get into any history book, Mm -hmm. and that's appalling. A bill in the Oklahoma State Senate now requires that Oklahoma high schools teach about the massacre failed to pass in 2012, and the reason given was because schools were already teaching it, so there was no need to have a bill for it. Okay. In 2015, a 10-page typewritten manuscript was recovered from a storage area donated to the Smithsonian. It was written by a lawyer in the Greenwood neighborhood named B.C. Franklin, which is related to John Hope Franklin. The following is a direct quote from the Smithsonian. The 10-page manuscript is typewritten on yellowed legal paper and folded in thirds. But the words, an eyewitness account of the May 31, 1921 racial massacre that destroyed what was known as Tulsa, Oklahoma's Black Wall Street, are searing. He writes, I could see planes circling in midair. They grew in number and hummed, darted and dipped low. I could hear something like hail falling upon the top of my office building. Down East Archer, I saw the old Midway Hotel on fire, burning from its top. And then, another and another and another building began to burn from their top, wrote B.C. Franklin. The Oklahoma lawyer, father of famed African-American historian John Hope Franklin, 
was describing the attack by hundreds of whites on the thriving black neighborhood known as Greenwood in the booming oil town. Lurid flames roared and belched and licked their forked tongues into the air. Smoke ascended into the sky, thick black volumes, and admitted all, the planes, now a dozen or more in number, still hummed and darted here and there with the agility of natural birds of the air. Franklin writes that he left his law office, locked the door, and descended to the foot of the steps. The sidewalks were literally covered with burning turpentine balls. I knew all too well where they came from, and I knew all too well why every burning building first caught from the top, he continues. I paused and waited for an opportune time to escape. Where, oh where, is our splendid fire department with its half-dozen stations, I asked myself. Is the city in conspiracy with the mob? Franklin's harrowing manuscript now resides among the collections of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. The previously unknown document was found last year, purchased from a private seller by a group of Tulsans and donated to the museum with the support of the Franklin family. In the manuscript, Franklin tells of his encounters with an African American veteran named Mr. Ross. It begins in 1917 when Franklin meets Ross while recruiting young black men to fight in World War I. It picks up in 1921 with his eyewitness account of the Tulsa race riots and ends 10 years later with the story of how Mr. Ross's life has been destroyed by the riots. Two original photographs of Franklin were part of the donation. One depicts him operating with his associates out of a Red Cross tent five days after the riots. John W. Franklin, a senior program manager with the museum, is the grandson of the manuscript's author and remembers the first time he had found the document. I wept. I just wept. It is so beautifully written and so powerful and he just takes you there. Franklin marvels. You wonder what happened to the other people. What was the emotional impact of having your community destroyed and having to flee for your lives? End quote. Another key point in this article that I read from the Smithsonian was about the terms. Quote, Franklin says he has issues with the words often used to describe the attack that decimated the black community. The term riot is contentious because it assumes that black people started the violence as they were accused of doing by the whites. Franklin says, we increasingly use the term massacre. End quote. There's also a book by Scott Ellsworth called Death in a Promised Land. The foreword is by Dr. John Hope Franklin, the son of Buck, or B.C., who I spoke about earlier. Nearly a year ago, Tulsa started the plan to dig for a suspected mass grave in a city-owned cemetery that was likely used to dispose of the bodies from the Tulsa Race Massacre. Wow. And even now, in 2021, so 100 years later, survivors are still fighting to have their voices heard. Quote, in May of 2021, which is the same month that we're recording this, 100 years after the massacre, 107-year-old mother Viola Fletcher testified before Congress. And she says this, quote, on May 31st of 1921, I went to bed in my family's home in Greenwood, she recounted. The neighborhood I fell asleep in that night was rich, not in just terms of wealth, but in culture and heritage. My family had a beautiful home. We had great neighbors. I had friends to play with. I felt safe. 
I had everything a child could need. I had a bright future. Then, she said, came the murderous rampage, still vivid in her mind 100 years later. She said, I still see black men being shot, black bodies lying in the street. I still smell smoke and see fire. I still see black businesses being burned. I still hear airplanes flying overhead. I hear the screams, end quote. That is so powerful. And she was a little girl. She was six or seven years old. That That is permanently etched in her mind. That's probably her earliest memory. Yeah. And what so a fucking sad. memory. At a recent court date, Mother Viola Fletcher said, quote, I will never forget the violence of the white mob men when we left our home. I have lived through the massacre every day. Our country may forget this history, but I cannot. End quote. Another survivor of the Tulsa Race Massacre testified via video conference. Her name is Lessie Benningfield Randall. She says, quote, My opportunities were taken away from me and my community. Black Tulsa is still messed up today. They didn't rebuild it. It's empty. It's a ghetto. Randall, who is now 106, said. Randall said she not only survived the massacre, but she has now also survived 100 years of painful memories. By the grace of God, she said, I am still here. I have survived to tell this story, she said. Hopefully now you will all listen to us while we are still here. Uh. End quote. And that is all I can tell you about the Tulsa Race Massacre. So I told you in the convo, before the convo, how emotional I got while I was researching this. Mm -hmm. That is why. The testimonies of these women who lived through it. And I highly encourage you all to go find Viola and Lessie's testimonies and hear in their own words. Yeah. Their memories, their accounts of what happened and how scarred it left them mm-hmm. and their families i i know i can link a youtube video for mother violas but i don't know if lessie's is on video or not but either way like mm-hmm. yes you have you have to hear it from them that will be much more impactful than hearing it from me obviously um but yeah and you know what i read in some research that i was doing that that Black Wall Street was rebuilt, but Leslie said that it wasn't, at yeah. least not the same, probably right. not how she knew it. Right. Mother Viola said that her family, like her, I don't know, her children, grandchildren, are paying for her. Right. She doesn't get to leave a legacy in terms of wealth. Yeah. Because of what happened in 1921. Right. It's a ripple effect and right. passed down generational And all trauma. they want, all they want, all they are seeking is justice mm-hmm. and reparation. Yeah. And that's, you know, and respect. Right. And that's I read that's why they they couldn't get the reparations for so long is because they called it a riot. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So and that I think I mentioned it towards the end, but yeah, riot is not the proper terminology when it comes to this because right. that implies that it was brought on by by black people. Right. And it wasn't. Right. And then there's the fact that since the white mob was never punished, never held accountable, that just sends the message out there that you can do shit like this. Right. And nothing will happen to you. Right. Right. That just perpetuated 
the hate and the mm-hmm. segregation and the KKK being on their little pedestal, it just kept it all going and alive. And that's what still does it now. Mm-hmm. And there's so much more to this event. There's so much more going on right now. And if you just Google the Tulsa Race Massacre, you'll be able to see up to date um, like where Mother Viola and all the other survivors that are still here, fortunately, mm-hmm. are at in their um, in their justice efforts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And tonight, when we're recording this, which is May 30th, I almost said of 1921, of 2021, <laughs> there's a show on the History Channel that's been heavily advertised the past couple of days called Tulsa is Burning, the Race Massacre of 1921 or something along those lines. It's on the History Channel. And I think that if you guys, if you can, you should watch that. Mm-hmm. Go to your go to your little on-demand and watch it. Your little on demand. Your little on demand. And I've I've been hearing. I told you I got that notification about an article from yeah. Google earlier. Tensions are really really high in Tulsa right now. There was supposed to be this commemorative um, memorial concert type of thing that got canceled out of nowhere. President Biden is supposed to be there Tuesday, so I don't know if he's going or not. But we'll find out by the time this gets posted. Right. It's one hundred um, years of no answers, no right. justice. Wow. Well, thanks for informing us. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, but that. really, you guys, I'm gonna leave a lot, a lot, a lot of, lot of, lot of sources linked below. Mm-hmm. I there were so many articles, so many different papers, and that that fifteen page Smithsonian document mm-hmm. um, that. Uh, resource will be linked Um, and then if you guys can go watch that show I think that that's going to be a really insightful one so that is the Tulsa Race Massacre and I think everyone needs to know about it and I think everyone needs to be talking about it I agree and now I think everyone needs a palate cleanser a palate cleanser Katie Delray what are you reading watching and listening to mostly just podcasts of course um so, To Live and Die in L.A., I talked about that one before, but they have a new season about a new case. Oh. A new missing person. This one is about the disappearance of Elaine Park. And it's very interesting because they actually did this and investigated this before season one. Oh. Happened. Huh. But I think they needed time to compile everything sure. and, and finish it. But they're very, very close. It's actually, I think the drummer, either drummer or guitarist from Incubus is there helping them. It's just very weird. That's A random. very weird um, kind of group of people, but it's it's really good. Yeah. So I started that one. There's only one new episode out. I think by the time this comes out, there will be two. I also started a new one that only has one or two episodes out, and that one is Missing on 9-11. And that is about how... When 9-11 happened, Dr. Sneha Philip, she was out shopping. She's like seen on video buying stuff and then she disappears. Oh, and wow. And nobody knows if she was like a 9-11 victim, if oh. somebody got a hold of her and murdered her, wow. if she ran away. Nobody knows. But that's very interesting. I knew about this before. I had heard it on a different podcast, but this is a really, really deep dive. So that one is missing on 9-11 and it's really good so far. And then I know I talked about Columbine a lot on last week's episode, but I don't think I mentioned the podcast about Columbine that I've been listening to. It's called Confronting Columbine. And I was telling you about this is the one that I was laughing so hard before you judge me. It is a (laughs) podcast about the mass school shooting at Columbine. But there is a part where one of the I'm sorry, one of the victim's family members recounts 
just a memory. You'll have to listen to it. I've never laughed so hard during a true crime podcast. Oh, during this a is com- the one you were telling me yes, about. Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> during a comedy podcast, I've never laughed that hard. No, y- yeah. And it's not, I'm not laughing at, at anyone's murder or anything like that. It's, it's just not, about yeah. like a memory that she shares. Yeah. And they were laughing. They were laughing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not, you No, you didn't no, just no, go no. off on your own. Rogue. No, no. Just go listen to it. That is Confronting Columbine. And that's co-hosted and produced by a survivor. Yeah, so, which is wild. Mm-hmm. And it focuses mostly on the survivors, how it's impacted their lives. It's not about, it's a little bit about the shooters, but not a lot. And that's really about it. I'm not doing much of anything else. What about you? So I'm not really listening to any podcasts, but I am reading a couple of books. Ooh, I'm not. Look at us just like hitting all of the marks. Hitting those marks. Five, six, seven, eight. Five, six, seven, and a one, two, three, (laughs) four, five, six. Go home, Roger. (laughs) Okay. So I'm still reading The Next Wife that I talked about last time. Mm-hmm. Haven't gotten too much further in there. I'm at 13%, but I'm okay. trucking along. Respectable. I'll accept it. A respectable 13% <laughs> in a few weeks. The other book that I started this week is The Vacation by M.M. Schwinard, and oh. I love her. She's one of my favorite authors of all time, and she's so sweet. We talk quite often on Instagram and Twitter. Oh. Um, and I started listening to via audiobook. Mother May I. I think that one's by Jocelyn Jackson. I couldn't tell you. If I'm right, but I'm not sure on that one. I'm probably wrong, uh, but it's called Mother. I know it's called Mother May I. Okay. But yeah, I haven't really been listening to any other podcast. That's what I'm reading and listening to both. Look at that. Hitting all the marks. You hit all your marks. Now, tell them where to find us, Katie. Oh, I'll tell them where to find us, Tori. (laughs) Are we on a game show? Yeah. You can send us an email. Cruel and unusual the pod at gmail.com. Send it there. You can find us on Instagram at cruel and unusual the pod. I tweet. She tweets. At cruel unusual pod. Also, you guys can send us a recording. Send us a voice message wherever with your Q O T D W and we'll play you on the podcast. Come on. You're supposed to be playing this game with us. And no one's playing. You're not, you you're play not a being game. fun. Want to play a game? Also, join our Facebook group, Cruel and Unusual, colon, the group, and go to crueltinkmedia.com. That is cruel, ink, I-N-K, media, media, dot com, period com. That's got our merch and a bunch of other stuff that you can go look at and peruse, okay? We love you. Bye. Goodbye.